BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm David Leonhardt. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. This week, does the Green New Deal symbolize the future of the Democratic Party? Or is it just leftist overreach? You can't promise everything and expect to be taken seriously. Then, the Brexit deadline is looming. What should England do? David, Britain is independent. I'm sorry to interject. And finally, a recommendation. The love child of Andrew Dice Clay and the little girl from Brave. And that's actually kind of it. (laughs) The Green New Deal the hot policy topic of the moment, is a measure drafted by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Edward Markey that proposes a grand strategy to combat climate change while creating jobs in the U.S. What this really is is an organizing play. It includes a 10-year commitment to convert 100% of the power demand in the U.S. to clean, renewable, zero-emission energy sources, to upgrade all existing buildings to meet energy efficiency requirements, and to expand high-speed rail. It also includes a lot of other commitments to universal health care, a living wage, even a job guarantee that don't usually get described as green, which has critics of the measure calling it leftist overreach, socialism disguised as climate reform. David's sitting this conversation out. He'll be back in the second segment. Our colleague, Michelle Cottle, is joining us from D.C. Hey, Michelle. Hello, Ross. So, Michelle G., I'm fascinated by the Green New Deal and what it means for the Democrats. Um, But you're closer to the issue than I am. What's your impression? It's sort of astonishing that the Green New Deal in this incarnation has gone from something talked about, you know, among a small group of Democratic socialists in New York to something that most of the Democratic candidates for president have now signed on to. The proposal is based, it's a combination, like, you know, as a lot of people have said, it's a combination of, you know, kind of climate mitigation and social democracy. And when I've talked to people who are close to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or close to some of the organizations that have um, mobilized behind the Green New Deal, they make a couple different arguments. One argument is that if you're talking about a fundamental restructuring of the economy, which they are, then you need to give people a safety net, right? That there's going to be losers if you're talking about transforming whole industries. And the way that you make that palatable for people is to make sure that there are good jobs and that they're not going to lose their health care in the process of changing jobs. And so so they will argue that this is actually that these things actually go together. The other argument, which I think goes to the scope of their ambition, is that I think that they intuited that essentially the era of Reagan has come to an end, that the set of assumptions that have governed American politics since Ronald Reagan have now played themselves out and that we're on the cusp of something new and that there's an opportunity 
to chart the horizon of what that would be, right? That there's like an opportunity to sort of chart the like ideological umbrella under which we're all going to be operating going forward. And so, you know, I think that if you see it that way, then it makes sense to really go big and to have this sort of grand mission statement for what you want the organizing values of your society to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm genuinely fascinated by the politics of this because it seems to me that this bears some resemblance to some of the sort of more radical ideas that tend to float around in Republican Party politics during primary campaigns and so on. Um, those ideas are usually more like a flat tax or 999 or, you know, we're going to abolish six cabinet agencies and so on. Um, but what's what's striking to me is how fast we've gone from having this conceived of by basically the socialist flank of the Democratic Party to having a blueprint that is a much more aggressive version of the sort of centrist Green New Deal's ideas that someone like our colleague Tom Friedman would champion, joined to a pitch for social democracy, and all the Democratic presidential candidates are signing on to it. You have most of the prominent people running for the Democratic nomination feeling like this is something they have to get on board with. Right. Although I, I sort of think that they are signing on to the Green New Deal in theory as opposed to signing on to all the specifics, right? I mean, Michael Bloomberg, should he run, is going to champion something that he's going to call a Green New Deal, but that is probably pretty different, you know, in the actual meat of it than what they've proposed here. And so I'm not sure that everyone who says, yes, I support a Green New Deal necessarily supports all the components of this particular non-binding resolution. No, I think I think that's fair. But there's still is no sense um, – there's no felt sense that like this is an opportunity to distance yourself from the wackier ideas of the left or anything like that. All, all of the pressure at the moment is to say that even if you have doubts about the details, you're for something like this. And Michelle C., I'm, I'm curious like Nancy Pelosi in a much quoted remark referred to the Green New Deal as the green dream or whatever they call it which was interpreted by some people as suggesting that she wanted to keep a certain distance. And I'm wondering if – is there a part of the Democratic Party right now that is really worried that they're being dragged too far to the left? I don't know that they're worried yet that they're being too far. There's a lot of skepticism. Um, and I think the speaker has been pretty clear that she is aiming to keep – anybody from running amok. I mean, not only did she make the comment about the Green Dream, I mean, she had not given the special climate change committee subpoena power or tasked them with hammering out a Green New Dream. She has been <laughs> talking in her best grandmother voice about how much she likes the enthusiasm behind the plan, which is about as patronizing as you can sound. Um, that said... She knows that she's got this new enthusiastic cohort to, to contend with and she is not looking to, you know, kind of go head to head so much. You know, I actually I think that there's there's a disjunction here between what is necessary and what is possible that makes in some ways sort of both sides of the debate seem irrational, right? I mean, it's it's true that what Ocasio-Cortez um, and other people are proposing, you know, under current circumstances is not going to happen. And would, we would need like huge political change to actually 
get this or anything close to it done. I think it's also true that if you really take the scale of the problem seriously, I just finished a book by David Wallace Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth, which is about what climate change is going to mean for people and society in the coming decades. And I just don't know how anybody could read that and the, and kind of not feel a sense of alarm and a sense that everything possible needs to be done to keep us from going to some of the upper estimates of what um, global warming could look like. And so in that sense, the thing you would say about the Green New Deal is maybe that it's not ambitious enough, that, you know, there's things that it should include that it doesn't. But I actually think that kind of nothing that mainstream Democrats are going to um, aren't going to roll their eyes at because they understand the limits of the political system is going to be sufficient to the crisis. Yeah, one of the things that when you're talking to Democratic skeptics, and I want to make that distinction between the climate deniers or whatever, we're talking about more centrist Democrats. And I understand the argument that if you're going to make these huge economic changes, you need to provide security, a sense of safety net. On the other hand, these Democrats are like, you can't promise everything and expect to be taken seriously as a blueprint for actual action. Now, you can treat it like a vision statement. You can treat it as a wish list. You're sitting around fantasizing with your friends about what the Democratic Party should be. But this is a Green New Deal, and people are focusing on the green part. But really, it talks about promoting social justice. It talks about you know family leave, retirement security, health care. It's throwing everything in there but the kitchen sink. That is not a plan. That is a vision statement that you then have to pick apart and work with, but it's also going to get you made fun of, and no one's going to take it seriously as a legislative kind of roadmap. What do you mean no one's going to take it seriously? I mean, obviously, a lot of people are taking it seriously, right? I mean, and that's why so many people are signing on to it. And I don't not Not politically. Well, I mean, the people who are rushing to co-sponsor it are taking it politically seriously, even if they don't think that this is going to be sort of enacted as as a grand legislative package in the next couple of years. But it is a roadmap to the sort of laws that the new generation of Democrats would like to enact if and when they take power. Sure. And if you talk to some Democrats, they're betting that the people who've signed on haven't read the thing, that they half of them have no idea what's in there. So I think it hasn't reached the point yet where anybody has drilled down. It is more a question of not necessarily virtue signaling, but it is definitely a we know that we need to stand for something and we kind of generally agree with this direction But now we need to work to make this more, I don't know, concrete maybe. But I mean part of what's fascinating too is that the political assumptions undergirding it are assumptions that the goal for Democrats is basically to – on climate is not to find something that could someday get Republican votes but to basically win big enough in some hopefully near future election that you can start – passing things with 60, let's say 60 votes or a post-filibuster landscape where you have this full-tilt progressive majority. But I mean so much of climate policy in the US and in most of the developed world has been built around the idea of getting right-of-center parties to buy in to carbon taxes and to sort of have that be the kind of technocratic solution. And the, the Green New Deal is not enthusiastic about 
carbon taxes particularly. It sort of says, well, you know, that approach is, might be fine, but really we want to just spend as much money as possible to sort of throw money at this problem. And that, that is a big strategic shift for the climate debate. Right. So I think underlying that shift and, you know, I mean, I would I think, it, you know, it's a mistake to not talk about carbon taxes. It's a mistake to tie the Green New Deal, I believe, to, you know, what they call modern monetary theory, right? This theory that you can sort of spend unlimited amounts in your own currency absent, you know, catastrophic inflation. But when I talk to people who, um, like I'm thinking about this conversation I had with Sean Micklewee, who's this really significant figure in the new, new left. Um, He founded a group called Data for Progress that poll tests a lot of these ideas. And what he said is something like, our argument is with the center left because the Republican Party is so unreasonable. You can't talk to them. There's sort of nothing for us to debate. They're not going to sign on to anything. So it's a kind of a fool's errand to try to craft something that would appeal to them. And I actually think that the legislative history of the last few years suggests that that's the case. Do you think, Michelle, see that there are Democrats who who are sort of on the center left who care about this issue, who imagine themselves working with Republicans on it at some point in the near future? Yeah, yeah. I think always, especially in the Senate, you're dealing with people who think in terms of compromise or the best deal possible. I mean, politics is the art of the possible on some level. So what the Green New Deal strikes me as trying to do is pull the Democratic Party in a similar way that the Tea Party pulled the Republican Party to the right. This is trying to make sure that the Democratic Party doesn't, you know, just kind of get swept along too much toward the center or the right. And it's reminding them that they have progressive values and they need to kind of come back on a lot of these issues toward the left. And Michelle G, as someone who is a little older than some of the progressives working on this right now and who bears more battle scars from, you know, the long wars with conservatives, does their confidence make you nervous? Um, You know, The thing that makes me nervous is their confidence that, like, people agree with us in polls, right? That people agree with all sorts of social democratic proposals when they're phrased a certain way in polls. And, you know, my experience in politics is, like, many years of, like, vastly overestimating the degree to which the American people agree with us. But what's – so this is – to me, I mean, you you said something slightly dismissive about modern monetary theory and how that's the weakest part of the plan. And to me as an observer that, you know, that's a very risky part of the plan, but politically it's actually in certain ways the least crazy part, right? Which is, you know, right, the, and they're smart. And that and they're smart, right? It's sort of a, a centrist fantasy that carbon taxes are practical in a way that some of these proposals um are you know, to see carbon taxes as as practical and to see some of these proposals as pie in the sky, I'm not sure that that actually matches the political reality. No, I don't think it does at all. I mean, I, I think basically the Green New Deal says in order to get people to buy into this, we're not we're going to tell them it's not going to cost them that much. You know, we're going to put it on the credit card and we hope we basically spend our way to an energy breakthrough before the inflation spiral hits. And I, I don't know if that's any crazier. <laughs> 
well, <laughs> right? Although, then, to be fair, what we have learned from the Republican Party in the last couple of years is that deficits don't matter, right? You can do whatever you want and cut taxes as much as you want and spend whatever you want, and nobody really cares. At least, they certainly don't these days, for the most part. And they're also, they're also correct in surmising that the cost of climate change itself is going to be astronomical. But it's a cost paid out across decades and decades in a society that at least we hope will be steadily richer and richer than it is today. Whereas the Green New Deal is basically saying we're going to take this tremendous economic gamble up front right now, you know, with this sort of, you know, I, I won't call it a Soviet style 10-year plan, but it's a 10-year plan, you know, <laughs> um, you know, on, on the assumption that that upfront cost will be less than the sort of distributed cost over time. So what you have to worry about here is how to balance the use of this as one Democrat noted it as an organizing tool or a vision statement or whatever with the real politic situation of at what point do you disappoint your base because you haven't managed in 10 years to solve everything from the oppression of indigenous people to family leave to health care. And you wind up with a fairly bitter left on the on the just assumption that they kind of thought more was going to happen. I don't know. I sort of think that the left will be more bitter if they feel like their leaders didn't even try. Yeah, I do think a conversation needs to be started about what does the Democratic Party stand for? I mean, this is a problem they had with the Hillary Clinton campaign. So I do think as far as like a new vision for what the Democrats stand for, that that conversation needs to be started. Are, are the Democrats where conservatives were in 1979, where they're sort of poised to have their own ideological revolution that will reshape things for a long time and this Green New Deal is part of it? Or are they where Republicans, Tea Party Republicans were in 2010, where they thought they were poised to have an ideological revolution and there were so many structural roadblocks in American politics that it just all came to grief. I mean, I think that they are, I mean, I like to think that they are where the where the conservative movement was in 1979. And I feel like in some ways, the revolution is going to happen just sort of demographically, right? I mean, millennials who are much more both diverse and left-wing than any generation before them are going to be I believe, the biggest voting block in 2020 and then kind of more politically significant going forward. And then they're followed by a generation that's as left wing as they are. And so that political transformation, I know that the Democratic Party can be over-reliant on demographics, but nonetheless, you know, the young people are going to replace us. Michelle C., as our, as our honored guest, I want to give you the last word to what extent is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really setting the agenda for Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and so on right now? I think this is kind of a discussion that's going to happen early in the primaries. It will not be in the weeds enough for it to, to be a real issue. But of course, climate change is going to be an issue, social justice and economic fairness. So in general, it will be. I just don't think that it's going to take center stage. Okay. I'm just curious about when it fully becomes AOC's party because I'm just as an observer really excited for that moment. So this was a, this was a lot of fun. Um, Michelle, do you want to stick around through and just uh, through the Brexit segment and come back for our recommendation? 
Absolutely. That'd be great. Thanks. Fantastic. All right. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, David is going to emcee a debate about the future of the United Kingdom. Drexel University infuses academics with the power of real experience. Through Drexel's renowned cooperative education program, students are empowered to test drive future careers and discover the perfect profession before graduation. By embracing experiential education, this Philadelphia institution has created a practical yet transformative academic model that inspires intellectual exploration and yields undeniable results. More at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Brexit. You've seen a lot of headlines about Britain's plans to leave the European Union. Brexit. 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 But I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you haven't read very many of those stories. Brexit seems complicated and repetitive, and if you're an American, it can feel very far away. But I've become fascinated by Brexit, and I want to share my fascination with you during this segment. Because Brexit is not actually that complicated. And what will happen over the next month or two will shape the future of Britain, of Europe, and of the Western world. Today, we're going to have a debate about Brexit, and we're going to ask you to make your own decision. If you were Britain, what would you do? Before we get into all of that, let me give you the basics. In 2016, the British public voted to leave the European Union trading zone which is known as the EU. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. But the ballot initiative didn't get into the details of how to leave. And now neither the British Parliament nor the British people can agree on those details. There are three options for what will come next. Option one is known as hard Brexit. And it's what will happen if Parliament doesn't do anything else over the next few weeks. Britain will just leave the EU come March 29th. Its agreements with Europe on travel, food, shipping, you name it, will be canceled. Option two is the middle ground, or soft Brexit. This is the one that Theresa May, the prime minister, has been pushing. Britain would leave the EU, but it would still abide by some of Europe's rules and still get some of the benefits. The trouble is, option two is too soft for people who support hard Brexit, and it's way too much for the nearly half of Britain that voted against leaving in the first place. Option three is a do-over. It's to hold another vote. This option has some obvious problems. It would essentially nullify a vote by the British people. But advocates for a revote say that people didn't realize what Brexit really was when they voted for it back in 2016. They should have another chance to vote now that they do understand. So, three options, and Britain must choose only one. Today I'm joined by two excellent guests to help you decide. One is Steve Hilton. He used to be a top advisor to David Cameron, the British prime minister who set Brexit in motion. Steve now lives in the U.S. and has written a book called Positive Populism. He favors hard Brexit. 
The other is my colleague Roger Cohen, an opinion columnist and former foreign editor of The Times. He recently wrote an impassioned case for a revote. Steve and Roger, welcome to the argument. Great Thank to be you, with David. you. Steve, you should go first. Will you please lay out for us what hard Brexit would look like? Yes. Um, my view is that hard Brexit is really the only Brexit. And the reason I say that is the nature of the Brexit vote itself and what that was all about, which is really national independence and sovereignty. And that was at the heart of the argument for leaving the EU. It wasn't really about trade or economics. It was about a country electing people who could make decisions about what goes on in that country and then be accountable to the people. And if you look at the EU and the way it works, it's really one giant institutionalized violation of democratic norms. Because as I experienced when I worked in 10 Downing Street, as you mentioned, most of the activity of the UK government was implementing decisions made by the EU. And in that sense, the EU is not just like a trade deal or some European version of NAFTA. The, the better comparison is with the federal government here in America. And the difference is that at least the federal government is elected, at least the president is elected and Congress is elected, whereas the EU force for driving policy forward, the EU commission, is not elected, it's appointed. And in that sense, all the alternatives to a hard Brexit in the end still leave the UK government subject to rules developed and implemented by an unelected body based in Brussels. In that sense, it's not Brexit at all. And that's why the only way to actually fulfill the vote, the majority vote to leave the EU, is what is known as a hard Brexit. Now, I've read a lot of descriptions of what a hard Brexit might look like. So can you describe for me, let's imagine it's March 29th and we actually get the hard Brexit, what you think of as the only Brexit. What do you think that actually looks like and why doesn't it, it scare you as much as it scares a lot of other people? Because if, if, the, if the UK left the EU, it would be like most other countries in the world who are not in the EU. And those countries manage perfectly well to live and trade and prosper outside of uh, being a member of the EU. To take some of those specific examples, um, they, they are mentioned uh, frequently by those who are worried about a hard Brexit. Um, but they've been knocked back every single time by the people who really know. That's not me. Good example in terms of flights, where you hear this all the time. Flights won't be able to take off on land and air travel will be completely disrupted. They're perfectly prepared for a situation where the, where the UK is not in the EU. One of the big problems, I think, with this argument that everything will grind to a halt if there isn't some negotiated outcome is that it, it asserts far too much primacy, I think, for bureaucracy and government in terms of how society and the economy really works. In the end, businesses want to sell to each other. Companies want to trade with each other. Countries want to get along with each other. And that's how most countries in the world operate who, are, who aren't, don't happen to be members of the EU. So I think some of this is so overblown. Look, I don't want to say there'll be no disruption. That would be ridiculous. But the idea that you can't cope with this, I think, is completely overstated. Roger, I know you're much more worried about the prospect of a hard Brexit. Yeah, sure, David. Uh, with infinite respect for Steve, the notion that David Cameron's government was some kind of stenographer for the European Union is just absurd. Uh, Britain was in the European Union. It was not, however, in the euro. Uh, it had control of its own monetary policy, of its own currency. Britain was a sovereign nation. And the slogan of the 
Brexiteers, as they were called, take back control. Take back control of what? Well, not take back control of the borders, not take back control of monetary policy. No, it was some nostalgic uh, fantasy, in essence. To foist all that on the European Union was bolstered by a series of lies, lies about Turkey being about to join the European Union and 80 million Turks about to descend on Britain, lies about money that would be given to the NHS in Britain, 350 million pounds a week going to the EU that could be spent on the NHS. As for hard Brexit, and I mean, I hope there isn't one, you could have certainly chaos in Ireland where a hard border would immediately go up. At some point, I'm hoping that Labour will see the light despite Jeremy Corbyn. And, and plenty of a democracy can think again. Uh, you know, the United States can think again a couple of years from now about President Trump if it wants to. And this should be taken not on a fantasy Brexit, which is what we had in 2016, but a reality Brexit. Now we know. Here are the terms. This is it. Do you want it? Do you want May's deal? Do you want no deal? Or do you want to remain? And that would make sense. Steve, let me ask you, it does feel to me like there was a story that the leavers, the pro-Brexit crowd, told to the British people that now that the British people have actually had a chance to see the details of Brexit, it does seem like the story that they told wasn't consistent with reality. Am I wrong about that? No, there's, there's a real truth to, 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 that, to what you say there. And the reason for that is that the leavers ended up not running the process. The process actually got taken over for various kind of catastrophic misjudgments very quickly after the vote by uh, sort of internal warfare within the Conservative Party that we needn't bore our listeners with. But the end result of all of that was that the people who made those positive and exciting and open arguments about how Britain could thrive and prosper and not turn its back on Europe, but actually continue to engage with Europe, but also be more outward looking and engage with the, with the wider world. All of that was lost because the, the people who, who made those arguments didn't end up running the process. Theresa May ended up running the process and she, she was, if, let's all remember, against leaving. She was for staying within the EU. Just, just one quick thing I'd say, a point of agreement with Roger, I think it's very important to say that he's absolutely right in that it's not correct to try and blame the EU for all the things that have gone wrong that, that contributed to the vote. And I've argued all along that the real answer to that is not leaving the EU, but what you do with the, with the newfound freedom once you've left. And the centrepiece of that has got to be policy, for example, to equip people with the skills to prosper in the 21st century economy, building infrastructure, all those sorts of things, which, which Roger's correct. They have nothing to do with the EU. I, I do agree about that. And how does Britain do that in a way if it were to become independent, that it can't do now? Is that like a sort of Reagan revolution for Britain? David, a Britain time? is independent. I'm sorry to interject. No, that's Britain a fair is point, independent. And, and Steve's phrase, the one he just used, newfound freedom. I'm sorry, newfound freedom? Do you, has anyone visiting Britain in the last 20, 30, 40 years felt he or she was in an unfree country? No, I completely agree. It's not. It's not about the free, the freedom of the citizens who live there. It's about the freedom of the people that the government that the people elect to actually implement policy. I mean, you know, the, most of what the government was doing was implementing EU directives. The freedom I'm talking about is mainly in the regulatory arena. Okay, so Roger, let me ask you about Revote. I mean, in in 2016, 
Britain voted 52% to 48% to leave. And I think there are a lot of people, including people who were really against Brexit, who find the idea of essentially saying, you know what, actually, that vote by the country doesn't count, let's do it again, to be worrisome because it feels anti-democratic. So can you walk us through why you think a revote is the right thing to do? I don't think there are any good outcomes, and this is not a good outcome, David, but I think it's the best of the options at, uh, at this point. You yourself uh, said to Steve, and Steve, I think, if I heard him correctly, agreed with you, that the vote of 2016 was held on the basis of a series of lies or misleading statements. Um, Denmark, Ireland, other EU members have reconsidered earlier votes and this is a decision for the ages. This is a decision for the next two, three generations. I suppose it's conceivable that Britain, having come out, could think again. And even, as you know, the, the vote of 2016 was thinking again about the referendum of 1975, uh, which came out more than 60 percent in favor of staying in the EU. So I think uh, you know, people say there'll be blood in the streets, Britain will be divided. Britain is divided. Um, this is a very fierce and contentious debate. Steve, is there any part of you that would actually welcome a second vote and then win it again and then remove any doubt about what the British people want? Yes, I, I'm not implacably opposed to a second vote. I think that certainty is what's needed above all, clarity and certainty about what's going to happen. That's that's my argument for a hard Brexit. At least we know what where we stand and people can plan accordingly. That also applies to a second vote. So I think it's, if you like, the, the second best option after a hard Brexit, much better than continuing to debate forever and ever. I think there's a couple of observations I'd make, though. First of all, there's not just been one vote for Brexit. There's actually been two votes for Brexit because there's been a general election. There was a general election uh, in 2017 and a big majority of candidates who then got elected to Parliament ran on a promise that they would implement Brexit. Secondly, I think that those who advocate this, I think it, they do have an assumption that if, if Britain voted again, it would, it would reverse the vote. I don't think that is a safe assumption at all. I think that the anger generated by the request to vote again might play a part. But also remember that if they look at opinion polls, you know, they before the campaign got going the first time, it looked outlandish, the idea that people would vote to leave. So I don't think you can rely on getting a different result. But the third point I'd make is that when the proponents of a second referendum say, look, now we know what it's all about, and, and people didn't have the full information, I just would recall that the campaign against leaving, the Remain campaign, its entire message was based on the worst-case scenario. All the same things that we're hearing now attached to a no-deal exit. So I think it's not accurate to say that people were voting on the basis of different information and that now you'd have new information. I think it'd be the same arguments entirely all over again, and you might get the same result. Let me just make very briefly the version of the Theresa May case, which is, look, her deal is consistent with the vote of the British people. It is not what the hard Brexit crowd wants. It's certainly not what the Remain crowd wants. But it moves Britain a little further from Europe while honoring this vote. Isn't that as muddle through of an option as it is? Isn't that both the most likely and the fairest option here? Steve, why don't you go first? 
I do think it's the most likely. The problem with it is that everything you said about it is true, but it only lasts for two years. It's a transition agreement, not a long-term agreement. And so the arguments about all the things we're discussing now and what, what is completely consuming the political debate in the UK about whether to be in the single market, whether to be in the customs union, what kind of trading relationship, what do you do about um, the citizens living in each other's countries, all of these things are, will still be there and unresolved under Theresa May's plan because her plan is a, trans, is a withdrawal agreement. It's a transition agreement. It is not an answer to what is the future relationship between Britain and the EU. That's why I think it prolongs the uncertainty, and that's why I think it's bad. Roger, what do you think about the May plan? I agree with, with Steve. I think it, it is the most likely, uh, just. I think the prime minister is trying to run down the clock and scare people. I think it's better than Steve's proposal of, you know, let's just get on with it. Again, I get back to the enormity of this decision, and it was foisted upon people through lies, and Britain should have the chance to think again. Well, one of the reasons I'm so absorbed by this story is that it's legitimately uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen over the next five or six weeks. So I really appreciate both your coming on, and I hope you'll be willing to come back once we find out what's actually going to happen over the next two months. Be a pleasure. Sure. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Roger. Thank, Thank you, Steve. Listeners, we really do want to know which of these three options you would pick. So if you have an opinion, call and leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. Play Britain, tell us what you do, and we may play you on the show. So now Michelle, Michelle and I are back. I get a kick out of saying that for our weekly recommendation. <laughs> and this week, it's Michelle G stands for Goldberg's turn. Michelle, what do you have for us? Okay, so this is sort of obvious because this show is aimed like a laser at my very particular demographic. But I am going to recommend the new Netflix show Russian Doll with the sublime Natasha Leone, And... It sort of is like a more like a darker Groundhog Day in certain ways. Natasha Leone keeps dying and ending up back in this bathroom at her 36th birthday party. Um, and she's sort of trying to figure out what is happening to her and what she has the power to change. Um, if I heard that description, I wouldn't necessarily want to watch it. But I just... It's so funny and delightful. I mean, just partly because she is so wonderful. People who really love New York, and I count myself as one of them, I feel like will see it as one of the more authentic New York shows that's ever been made. I mean, it, it just gets the texture of the city in a way that a lot of New York-based shows don't, or at least the texture of the city as I've as I've lived it. Yeah, I have to completely agree with you. I have been watched the whole thing. So I just went crazy with it. It has this great feel to it. If you just describe it, it is like, okay, so it's Groundhog without the comedy or whatever. But it's not. And it's a great showcase for Natasha Leone, who is fantastic. She has this kind of over-the-top shtick, which... At one point, she describes herself as what would be the love child of Andrew Dice Clay and the little girl from Brave. And that's actually kind of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think uh, that Ross should go out and completely uh, in, indulge himself. 
it's and you know I also I also have to say it's just it's so again maybe this is like a really predictable observation but I just love the fact that you have this show about a woman in her mid 30s that's sort of like an existential detective show as opposed to you know like a romantic quest I feel like you don't really get a show about a woman that's not really in any real sense about her love life yeah, it's she's completely driving this train and she's if anything she's the unromantic person in this thing as opposed to this guy who's in it um and she is just brilliant with the whole thing. The show is called Russian Doll. It's on Netflix. Thank you Michelle and Michelle. That's our show for this week. Thank you. <laughs> Bye guys. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn, and we had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. And our theme was composed, as always, by Allison Leighton Brown. Fantastic. All right, we're going to quake. T- <coughs> we're going to quake. <coughs> we're going to take a quick break. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.